Well, if you would, let's open up to the book of Romans in chapter 15. The book of Romans in chapter 15. One of the most prominent themes in the scriptures is that of hope. God's people are to be marked by hope. Uh, This hope that marks them is not wishful thinking. It is an eager expectation of what God has promised and will certainly give. Again, the hope that marks the Christian is not wishful thinking, but an earnest, eager expectation of what God has promised and will certainly give. Hope is forward-looking. It's expectant. Hope knows what God has promised, believes what God has promised, and now longs and waits for what God has promised. And hope causes the Christian to live today in light of what is coming in the future. Throughout this letter to the Romans, Paul has mentioned some of these great realities that Christians are waiting for. Longing for? Waiting for. For example, back in Romans 5 verse 2, we read, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And it doesn't get much better than that. All around us in creation, we see God's glory on display. And in the Bible, and especially in the message of Christ dying for sinners, we see God's glory on display. But there is coming a day when we will look on the face of the glorified Jesus Christ, and in Him we will behold God Himself. We will live in a world of glory, a world pervaded by God's glory, a world of beauty and magnificence all around us, Christ himself as the origin and the sustainer of all of that glory and as the most glorious of all. Mount Hermon, as Christians, we've been promised that this day is coming. We rejoice in the hope, the eager expectation of the glory of God. We anticipate that day, we wait for that day, and we live today in light of that day. Or back in Romans 8, verses 20 and 21. Paul told us more about this this hope. He said, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So part of what we are waiting for is the day when the curse will be lifted from this world 
and this world will be paradise. We are waiting for the day when there will be no more sickness, no more cancer, no more death, no more people killed in hurricanes or floods or earthquakes. The curse will be lifted. There will no longer be hostility between men and animals. As Isaiah said, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, their nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the day that's coming. And we are to live today and face the callings of Monday, the challenges of Monday, the trials of Monday, knowing that 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 day in its fullness is coming. Just one more. Romans 8 verse 23, Paul says, not only the creation... But we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. That's that's hope, by the way. Wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So what are we waiting for? Not just the day when the creation around us will be sinless and perfect and healthy and glorious, but the day when our own bodies will be sinless and perfect and healthy and glorious. Our strength will be renewed like the eagles. We will know what it is to live as the healthy sons and daughters of the Son Most High. No more broken bones, more surgeries in heaven. Do you see the power of hope? Missionaries give up so many luxuries and pleasures of this life and go to hard, impoverished places. Live in hard, impoverished places in hope. In other words, they can give up so much today because they know that that day is coming. And their sacrifices today are used by God to bring about that promised day. How many martyrs have gone to their deaths with courage? Being burnt at the stakes, drowned in rivers, eaten by lions, shot in the head by authorities. And how many of them have died bravely, some even singing, because of this hope? Their eager expectation that death is nothing more than an usher to bring them into the presence of Christ, and the belief that even their deaths are part of God's plan to speed ahead, to hasten the coming of the promised day. What is the hope of the mother? As she spends another day cleaning spit up and changing diapers. It is that the work she is doing today not only blesses her child, but fulfills the calling Christ has given her, which helps bring about the coming day. She is a missional mom, parenting for the sake of the kingdom and the coming of Christ. 
What is the hope of the Christian businessman? It is that as he fulfills his calling for the glory of Christ, he's helping bring about the coming day. He's a missional businessman seeking to serve the kingdom in all that he does. Trusting that every good work done in faith in this life redounds to the glory of God, brings rewards in the life to come, and speeds forth the coming of Christ. And so Peter says in 2 Peter 3, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So how do we hasten the coming of the day of God? How do we bring about, how do we speed forward the day when Jesus will come back and make all things right? Answer, by living lives of holiness and godliness that influence others and build the kingdom. And when Christ deems that his kingdom is built, he will return and the promises of God and fruition will return with him. So why am I talking about hope again? Because we just touched on this a good bit back in verse 4. But here we find that it is yet again central to our passage. So let's read it. Let's see if you see it. We're going to pick up Romans 15, beginning in verse 7, reading down to verse 13. Romans 15, verses 7 through 13. This is the very word of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So remember what we saw just two Sundays ago. Paul is explaining in these verses why Jews and Gentiles in the same local church should welcome one another into each other's hearts and lives. Paul is explaining why these people who are different from one another should make space for each other in each other's lives, living life together. And he's particularly dealing with the issue of why Jesus came as a Jew. Does the fact that Jesus came as a Jew and ministered to the circumcised, as a servant to the Jews, does that mean that Jews have a reason to boast over Gentiles? Is this a reason for Jews in this local church to see themselves as somehow superior to the Gentiles in that local church? And Paul uses four Old Testament passages to explain that Jesus came as a Jew in order to fulfill the promise God had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that promise was always a promise about the nations. 
Yes, Jesus came as a Jew, but he came as a Jew to fulfill the Jewish promise of blessing the world. And you remember the progression that we saw in these verses that Paul quotes. In the first quotation, it's a Jew praising God among the Gentiles. In the second quotation, it's an invitation for Gentiles to join the Jews in praising God. In the third quotation, it is a call for all the nations to praise God. And in the final and most climactic quotation, Paul says it will be through the coming Messiah, the one who will rule over the nations that this worldwide praise to God will be brought about. So Jesus never came just to be king of the Jews. Jesus came to be Lord of all. And he came to be the hope of all. The great plan that God has been working in this world, a plan in which the Jews had a prominent place, was always leading to this great end that the nations would hope in Christ. It's not about Jewish superiority. It's not about Gentile superiority. It's about Christ being preeminent as the one in whom peace and joy and love and security and wonder and eternal life are found. So Jews and Gentiles, here is what unites you. Christians who are different in all kinds of other ways, here is what unites you. Your hope is in Christ. And so in light of that great plan of God, in which these Christians have found their place, Paul pronounces on them this blessing in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now, there are several rich, wonderful observations that we could make along these lines from these verses. I think this one is central. Notice that the hope of the Christian is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. This is verse 12 when he quotes from Isaiah 11.10 about the Messiah. And he says, the root of Jesse will come. Jesse, father of David in the Old Testament. Jesse was not a well-known man, not a man of great prestige. But Samuel came to his house and at God's direction anointed his youngest son David, king of Israel. David would prove to be Israel's greatest king. And then there would be kings who would come from the line of David, which means kings coming from the line of Jesse. So part of the prophecy here was that the Messiah would come from this same family line. But there's more to it. Because Isaiah uses two pictures of the Messiah in Isaiah 11. One he uses is of the Messiah as a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. In other words, when you think about the line of Jesse, this royal line... Don't picture it as this large, spreading out, fruitful tree. No, the line of Jesse is a stump. Because things were not going to go well for the line of Jesse. After David, you have Solomon. And Solomon, after him, you have the kingdom divide and things only go downhill from there. Eventually, what people had hoped would be a a glorious line of kings, it gets cut off. 
In fact, the descendants of Jesse, the line of kings, ends up being hunted down and destroyed with only one escapee left to preserve the line at all. This was God's judgment. This did not prove to be a line of godly kings. Despite their good start with David and a few bright spots here and there, this was a line of ungodly, unfaithful kings. Jesse becomes a stump. And then, in the fullness of time, on the stump, a little shoot appears. And listen to what Isaiah says about this king. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. So this is the king in whom we trust. This is the son of Jesse, the son of David, who is the greatest king of all. And aren't you thankful, dear Christian, he is full of the Spirit of God. He is full of wisdom and understanding. Our king is perfect in his judgment, pure in all his ways. Other kings and judges are feeble, sinful men. Even the best human kings have to make decisions based on the information they have. Remember weapons of mass destruction? Human leaders, even the best, have to make decisions based on the information that they have. But this king is almighty. He knows all. He judges with equity. He is not partial. He judges fairly, rich and poor alike. This is the one in whom we hope. But then there's that other picture that Isaiah uses. Because he described the Messiah not just as a shoot from the stump but as a branch from Jesse's roots. Isn't that interesting? Christ is a shoot from the stump, but he's also a branch from the roots. So he both is descended from Jesse and comes from Jesse's line, but this Christ is also before Jesse, underneath him. There would have been no Jesse had there not been this Jesus. He's older than Jesse. He's, He's the ancient of days. This king isn't just the greatest man who ever lived. He he is the very son of God. Divine, eternal, from everlasting to everlasting. So Mount Hermon, our hope in Christ includes at least three glorious realities. Okay, The first is that we are hoping in Christ because of who he is. His glorious character. We are hoping in all that we just heard from Isaiah about who this Messiah is. He alone is the one whom we can hope and believe he will be faithful. He will not disappoint us. He will not let us be ashamed. He will not let us down. Has there ever been a prominent human figure who has not let people down? Jesus makes you promises. He keeps everyone. Every single one. 
But then second, we hope in Christ because it is in Him that all the great promises that God has made to His people are going to come true. So the promise of a new heavens and a new earth, the promise of a, of a glorified body, the promise of a kingdom, a perfect people living in a perfect world, ruled by a Savior who loves His people so much that He died for them, it is in Christ that all of those things come true. As Paul said to the Corinthians, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And then there's more. Because third, we hope in Christ because in Him we already have the first fruits of what is coming. This is so important to understand. If, if you get this, it will cause the books of the New Testament especially to break open for you. There are a lot of verses that don't make sense until you get this. The amazing reality is that Jesus has already brought in his first coming the beginnings of the glorious realities that we will know in fullness at his second coming. I'm just going to say that again. Jesus has already brought in his first coming the beginning of the glorious realities that we will know in fullness at his second coming. So some illustrations. It's kind of like a man from a poor village who has been suddenly adopted by a great king and promised very soon he is going to go live with that great king in the king's palace. And the papers are signed. The adoption is finalized. And a robe from the king's house has been brought to the man. Some food from the king's kitchen has been brought to the man. Little bits of the glory he is to know in the future have already been brought to the man. That's how it is for us as Christians. As Christians, our adoption as children of God and our inheritance in heaven, it's finalized. The paperwork has been signed. It's been filed. It's a sure thing. Jesus finished everything necessary when he died on the cross. And now as the risen and ascended Lord, he brings his adopted children to him in faith. He brings them into the experience of that adoption. Now you get to call God Father now. Right now. You get to approach him as his children right now. In heaven, you are going to be full of the spirit of God. In heaven, the Spirit's going to empower absolutely everything you do. But already, Jesus has come and begun the work of giving you the Spirit. He gives the Spirit in measure as He chooses, some greater, some lesser. But we have something of the Spirit now within us that we will have in fullness in heaven. In heaven, we will live among a people who are full of love and kindness and joy but Jesus has already begun surrounding us with people who are at least marked by those qualities to a degree. The local church is to be just a little taste of the communion of saints in heaven. And because we're one with Christ, because we're united to Christ, the scriptures go so far as to say that when Christ ascended into heaven, there is a very real sense in which his people ascended with him. Ephesians 2. 
You are one with Christ, united to Him spiritually. You're part of His body, and therefore, part of you is already in heaven. Part of you has already risen from the dead, because Christ is part of you. Part of you has already experienced glorification. Jesus is the first fruits, and you are one with Him. Uh, the Puritans, I love this illustration, they said it's like a man making his way through thorny shrubs into a clearing. Jesus is the head of the body. The head has already made it through the shrubs into the clearing, and the body is following behind. But because the head has made it through, the body is sure to make it through. We're, we're partly through the hedge. We're in transition, right? We're, we're in the already. Part of us is already there. And the not yet, because we're not completely there yet. We are those on whom the end of the ages has come. And Christ is working out the whole program of end time events all around us. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things has been at hand for 2,000 years. Christ began his end time program when he came at his first coming. He will bring his end time program to an end at his second coming. So this is why we hope in Christ. He has already begun bringing to us all that God has promised. All right, so I use this phrase, the already and the not yet. This is, I think, a helpful phrase in thinking about where we live as Christians. Have you ever thought about how strange we Christians really are? Oscar Coleman uses an illustration from World War II. He asked us to consider the people who were living between D-Day, June 1944, and V-Day, spring of 1945. Okay? So in a very real sense, D-Day was the decisive battle of World War II. Uh, D-Day was a battle that guaranteed the outcome. But the rest of the war still had to be fought. As 1944 led into 1945, allied peoples were beginning to taste the fruits of victory. Towns and cities that had been occupied by the Nazis were being set free. But the war wasn't over until it was over. Coleman says the decisive battle in a war may have occurred in a relatively early stage of the war. Yet the war still continues. Although the decisive effect of that battle is perhaps not recognized by all, it nevertheless already means victory. But the war must still be carried on for an undefined time until Victory Day. Precisely this is the situation of which the New Testament is conscious. As a result of the recognition of the new division of time, the revelation consists precisely in the fact of the proclamation that that event on the cross, together with the resurrection which followed, was the already concluded decisive battle. So we have these twin ideas in Scripture. The idea that the war has already been won at the cross and at the empty tomb. And the idea that we still have to continue in battle a while longer until Victory Day arrives. 
The kingdom has come, but not yet in its fullness. You are already a new creation soul. You're a new creation soul still in an old creation body. Right? You've been saved, but you're still waiting the day of your ultimate salvation. We live in the already and the not yet. The period between D-Day and V-Day. And as Christ accomplished the decisive victory in his life, death, and resurrection, so he is working now by his spirit through his people to bring about the very end. So here is one glorious application of living with such hope. Not only do we have joy as we look to the glory that is coming in the future, but we have reason for great joy in the callings that Jesus has given us right here and right now. Why? Because all of our work and all of our efforts today have meaning. Because as we obey Christ, we are helping bring about V-Day. As we obey Christ, we are helping bring about the promises of God. Like soldiers who have been given their different orders, we are fulfilling our callings in this in-between period. And we are helping bring about the end. Everything that we're doing is helping bring about the final day, the victory day, the new heavens and the new earth. So remember Ephesians 2 verse 10. Why did Jesus not take you to heaven the moment you believed and were saved? It's because he had work for you to do. Jesus works through his spirit, through his word, in you and me to bring about his plans. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you're new people, Christians. You are the workmanship of God. You were created in Christ Jesus. And God prepared beforehand that you would have a part to play. That you would have a role to feel in the great work he's doing of bringing about the end. So are you a mom? All the work you do in Jesus' name to be a faithful mom is helping to bring about the kingdom. V-Day. All the work you do as a wife, as a friend, as a sister, as a church member, and in every other role that God has given you is part of your divine assignment. And as God's people work and pray and serve and worship, the kingdom is coming. And all of it has meaning. All of it has glorious consequences for the future. There are no little people, no unimportant roles, no needless callings in the service of Christ. We live in hope. We serve in hope. We do all that God has given us to do right now, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and we do it all looking forward to the victory day that we know is coming. All right. Very quickly, almost done. How can we abound in this hope? I spent almost the whole sermon just trying to explain the nature of this hope and how it affects us. How can we abound in this hope? Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to to, to live this way, to live with that eager expectation in us of the future that tells us that what we're doing right now matters so that we do it with integrity and we do it with joy? How can we abound in this hope? It's verse 14. This is Paul's blessing on the Roman Christians. This is his prayer 
for all God's people. I said verse 14, verse 13. I knew it was wrong as soon as I said it. Verse 13. What do we see here? We see number one, it's God that must make this happen. We cannot have this hope if God doesn't give it. This is why Paul speaks this as a blessing. May the God of hope fill you. God must do the filling. And he is the God of hope. That is, he's full of hope. He he knows the end from the beginning. He's fully able to fill any human heart with as much hope as he chooses. God is a fountain of hope. He's an ocean of hope. He's never going to run dry of this resource. He's never going to find himself unable to give it. If you want water, you go to a source of water. If you want hope, go to the God of hope. Go to the source. Second, we see that the God of hope gives us hope as we're being filled with peace and joy in believing. In other words, God gives us faith in Christ. We rest in Christ. We believe the promises of Christ. And as we trust Christ, there is a kind of joy. There's a kind of peace that comes to us. And all that does is make us long all the more for the day of joy and peace ahead. So God works through faith. He works through the fruit of faith, the joy and the peace as we believe on Christ and the promises of God. And that increases our hope. The more the young man and the young lady get to know each other and enjoy each other, the more they long for the day when they'll finally be married. The more we are growing in Christ, getting to know Christ, communing with Christ, believing on Christ, experiencing the joy of communion with him, the peace of resting him, the more we long for the day when we will know Christ in all fullness. And so our hope increases. And then finally, we see that God gives us this hope. How? Through the Holy Spirit. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can abound in hope. So when God chooses to give someone hope or to increase your hope, he will do it through the agency of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you is the Holy Spirit that dwells with God and is God. He is one with God. So when God has determined to give a believer hope, it is the spirit inside of that believer that makes it happen. It's the Holy Spirit who actually creates the hope, maintains the hope, strengthens the hope, enlivens the hope within us. And so, oh, how we need more of the power of the Spirit of God. So what's the application? Draw near to Christ. Believe on Christ. Let us submit to the rule of Christ. Let us know Christ as our Lord, and then let us carry out our calling as his soldiers, knowing he's won the decisive battle, and as we fulfill the callings he has given us, we are helping bring about the victory day ahead. Mount Hermon, may we know peace and joy in believing on Christ, and as we do so, may we abound in hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. May God make it so. Let's pray.